Good morning, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. Let me start by answering some initial questions uh, you may have. Yes, this is a cast. No, I'm not supposed to be lifting things. Uh, it is made of fiberglass, apparently. I'm wearing it because I had surgery uh, last week, to, uh, a couple weeks ago, to repair a fractured scaphoid bone in my wrist. I fractured it playing soccer. Yes, I know you're not supposed to use your hands in soccer unless you're the goalie. I will hopefully only have it on for three more weeks. I really hate wearing it, and I do intend to play soccer in the future. That is usually the array of questions that I, that I get. So I just wanted to get that out of the way for everybody. Um, if you have further questions, please do ask them on your way out or write them on your connection card. And someone from the staff will follow up with you. <laughs> Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a plane. I was coming back from a, a quick trip to Texas, and I was working on this sermon. And I was taking notes uh, from commentaries on what Jesus was saying and what he wasn't saying. And I knew, I knew that whoever was sitting next to me, I knew it was a risk. Because uh, if they peeked at my laptop and they would see comments about Jesus' second coming and would either freak out and leave me to work in peace or be intrigued and ask me more questions. Now, I was really hoping for the former so that I could work, not so that I could freak them out. But the moment my neighbor asked if I was a pastor, I knew it would be the latter. <laughs> In fact, the moment, it was, it was the moment he asked, what's your eschatology? <laughs> that I, I, I knew, uh, you know, because eschatology is the theological term for the study of the end times, and usually only those who have a particular eschatology use the term eschatology in a question in normal conversation. So, um, uh, according to the New York Times, the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by a guy called Hal Lindsey. Some of you may know that or heard of it. It treats certain parts of the Bible as predictive prophecy. It draws lines from Scripture directly to events that were taking place at the time, wars and natural disasters, even the development of what would become the European Union and concluded that Jesus' return was imminent. One of Lindsay's follow-up books, released a decade later, was called The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon, which was based on the premise that the Antichrist, a figure named in the book of Revelation, was already on the earth and would emerge in the 1980s. In the 1990s, he wrote, Planet Earth, 2000 AD, Will Mankind Survive? And in 2003, after humankind had apparently survived the turn of the millennium, Though, to be fair, I do remember uh, many of us being a little anxious that all of our technology wouldn't handle the Y2K transition, right? Well, in 2003, uh, Hal Lindsey wrote the last of his 36 books, many of which were focused on the end of the world and Jesus' imminent return, as predicted in Scripture and interpreted through the lenses of contemporary events. It turned out my neighbor on the plane grew up in a Christian tradition where books like Lindsay's and announcements of Jesus' imminent return, because, I mean, look at all of the things that are going on, were talked about pretty much every other week. The end of the world was at the forefront of his awareness for most of his life. By the time we were talking, though, his views had shifted away from what he had been brought up with, but maybe you know uh, Christians who hold those views and share them loudly and widely. I mean, some appear more on the fringes, like Harold Camping. Some might, might remember Harold Camping, whose most recent prediction of October 21st, 2011, was actually his fifth prediction. Uh, he offered three dates in 94 and one in 95 when things didn't happen. 
But even one suburban megachurch pastor in California predicted a decade ago that God would collect his faithful in 2021 at the latest. Now, it's easy to poke at, at you know, these prophecies when they don't come true, right? It's easy to kind of poke fun at that and, well, if, if something, do, something doesn't come through, maybe you should treat their next prophecy with a little bit of, uh, you know, a little more circumspect. One of the Bible's and life's proofs for a true prophet is that what they prophesy does come to pass. And yet, even the, the fable of the boy who cried wolf does end with a wolf actually showing up. Now, obviously, I don't think of God as being a big bad wolf. Uh, that's not the point of what I'm saying here. But one of the tenets of Christian belief, it's named in today's passage, and it's uh, included in the Apostles' Creed, which is a confession of faith for Christians for centuries, is the return of Jesus to earth. He will come to judge the living and the dead. In today's passage, Jesus does talk about the return of the human one, the Son of Man in other translations, a term he often used to describe himself, and he used phrases usually reserved in Jewish literature for God, coming in the clouds, sending his angels. Now, over the last few weeks, we've worked through some some challenging words of Jesus, including on marriage and the resurrection and on paying taxes to Caesar. And in each case, Pastor Matthew and Pastor Lisa respectively have, have both said something along the lines of, I know that the heading in your Bible says this, but it's actually sort of not really about that. Um, if, you're, if that piques your curiosity, you can go back and listen to them. Well, the heading in my Bible calls this section Signs of the End. And what I would say is it, it, well, it sort of is and it sort of isn't. What I want to do this morning is to help us understand how Jesus' initial listeners would have heard it so we can discern what's for us. So we can know, in the words of our heading, for this part of Mark's gospel, how to really live. Mark 13 begins just after Jesus has commented on the poor widow who dropped her last coins in the offering pot at the temple, which Pastor Andrea talked about last week. This is where it picks up. After Jesus, as Jesus left the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings. Jesus responded, Do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What sign will show that all these things are about to come to an end? You know, I don't think poorly of the disciples for these questions. Uh, I don't think poorly of those who, who try to read the signs to know when the end is coming. At least I don't think poorly of what I think are the underlying motivations. I understand the desire to know what's coming. Yeah. Right? We all have it. In the midst of uncertainty and unpredictability, it is only natural to try to grab hold of whatever we can, whatever knowledge or information, whatever sense of control we can. Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple, which would have been a truly cataclysmic event for the Jewish people. The last time the temple was destroyed uh, had been hundreds of years earlier. The people of Israel had been taken into exile by the Babylonians. It had marked the end of the monarchy, the end of King David's line. The temple was the center of their faith and their culture, and more than that, it was a place they believed that God dwelled. It would only be natural to wonder if someone is foretelling the destruction of the temple when is that going to happen? Here's a thing we see in Mark's gospel often. Someone asks Jesus a question. He doesn't answer it directly. 
about marriage, about paying the imperial tax, about the Sabbath. And um, I can attest that to my, I can attest to that in my own life too. That oftentimes when I ask Jesus a question, the answer I get is usually not the answer I seek. But it is the answer I need. Even if I didn't know I needed it. Is there a question you have been asking God? Is there an answer you have been waiting on? When will I be happy? When will I feel fulfilled? When will I land the job I feel like you've been preparing me for? When will I know my purpose? When will I find a community to belong to? When can I be fully myself and accepted for who I am? When will I heal? When will I meet someone to spend the rest of my life with? When will I be free of this affliction or addiction or anxiety? Or maybe beyond yourself to a loved one in need, when will they come to know the life and liberation you, Jesus, promised? When will they know peace? Or to our shared humanity, when will we know a true justice in our streets and in our country? When will the arc of the moral universe reach its destination? When will you make all things new, Lord? Fully, finally, and not just in part. Psalm 38, verse 9 says, Everything I long for is laid out before you, my Lord. My sighs aren't hidden from you. God knows our longings. God hears our sighs. God is not far from us in our waiting. Now, God may not give, always give us the answer we seek, especially to those when questions. But I do believe and I can testify that God will give us the answers we need even if it is only bread enough for the day. Even if it is only bread enough for the day. God is with us in the waiting. Here in Mark 13, in, in response to the question of when from his disciples, Jesus' answer is, watch out, that no one deceives you. When you hear of wars and reports of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must happen but this isn't the end yet. Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other. There will be earthquakes and famines in all sorts of places. These things are just the beginning of the sufferings associated with the end. These things, wars and conflicts and earthquakes and famines, they do not mark the end. Jesus is very clear about that. These are not the end. He's telling his, his disciples what the end is not. They may be the beginning of the end, but they are not the end. Wars and conflicts and earthquakes and famines have been happening since long before Jesus' time and continue to this day. And what is for us today as well is that as chaotic and unsettling as everything may seem around us, these things do not mark the end. So watch out, Jesus says, that no one deceives you into thinking they are. Watch out, he says again to his closest disciples, watch out for yourselves. He prepares them for the persecution that is about to take place for his followers. See, this, was, this, this, this uh, instruction was particularly pertinent and present for the first readers of Mark, early Christians in Rome, experiencing the political and social and familial separations that their faith was causing. 
to be a member of a new religious sect, following a man who had been executed as an enemy of the state by the Roman Empire and then apparently resurrected from the dead. It was to challenge core beliefs of the Jewish faith, it was to challenge Roman customs, and it demanded a loyalty to the Lord, to Jesus, as one's highest obligation, even over family. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what he knew was coming. You can read this passage yourself. It's a forewarning of the suffering that is to come for those who follow the suffering servant, being arrested, being beaten, being put on trial, being turned in by your own family, being hated because of Jesus. And yet the instructions that he gives his closest disciples, remember he's talking, still talking to James and John and Peter and Andrew. He's talking to them right now, those four. The instructions that he gives them are, watch out for yourselves. Don't worry ahead of time about what to say when you are put on trial, but trust the Holy Spirit to give you the words. And then reading behind, between the lines on verse 13, stand firm until the end. Watch out for yourselves. Don't worry ahead of time. Trust the Holy Spirit to give you the words. Stand firm until the end. What Jesus predicted, it did come to pass. The early Christians experienced tremendous persecution. We see some of it in the book of Acts and in the writings of the, the Apostle Paul. Many of his letters were written from the inside of Roman prisons. And ultimately, Paul, along with three of the four disciples Jesus was addressing, Peter, James, and Andrew, they would all be martyred because of their faith, because they stood firm until the end. Now, throughout history and around the world, still to this day, people are persecuted for being followers of Jesus. Some put on trial, some are beaten, some face intense opposition from their families, considered apostate from the faith they were born into or asked if they've joined a cult. Many have lost their lives. Many have stood firm until the end, testifying by the power of the Holy Spirit to a good and gracious God and the love of Jesus. But I think it's important to name what is and isn't persecution in our modern American context. Because yeah. yeah. Jesus, Jesus is not saying, if you consider yourself a Christian, anything that you do that garners opposition or rebuke is persecution. In context and in substance, following Jesus is not just calling yourself a Christian. It is living as Jesus did and loving God and neighbor as he did. It is challenging unjust powers and principalities as he did. It is calling out economic exploitation and religious exclusion and spiritual abuse as he did. If you face opposition and ostracism for those things, if you're put on trial and beaten for those things, know that you are truly walking in the way of the Jesus we follow. And besides, the instruction of Jesus to those truly experiencing persecution is not complain loudly to the media or on social media about it. <laughs> is it? It is this. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Trust the Holy Spirit to help you testify to the good news. Stand firm until the end. Instructions that are for all of us at all times. Now, the next few verses are a bit more confusing. I didn't include it in the passage uh, for Emma to read earlier because I wanted to be able to walk through it uh, together, walk through the passage together. So beginning in verse 14, when you see the disgusting and destructive thing standing where it shouldn't be, in some translations it says the abomination that causes desolation, the reader should understand this. 
Then those in Judea must escape to the mountains. Those on the roof shouldn't come down or enter their houses to grab anything. Those in the field shouldn't come back to grab their clothes. How terrible it will be at that time for women who are pregnant and for women who are nursing their children. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. In those days, there will be a great suffering, such as the world has never before seen and will never again see. It's a, it's a cryptic passage. And far too often what we try to do in our uh, desire for information, for knowledge, is we try to make sense of things in the Bible uh, without first trying to understand what they meant for the original audience. Without first recognizing that Scripture can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. Now, the implications may be different for us, because we live in a different age and a different era, and we need to apply those lessons and principles to different situations, but we must first understand what it meant for them. These verses sound like the book of Revelation, sound like uh, the, the writings of John at the end of the Bible. They sound like parts of the Old Testament book of Daniel. And this is a particular genre in Scripture that's called apocalyptic literature apocalyptic literature. To quote Cuban-American theologians Catherine and Justo Gonzalez, in general, apocalyptic literature seeks to deal with the suffering of the just at the hands of the unjust, and does so in highly symbolic language that combines liberal use of metaphor with numbers of often mysterious meaning. Since such literature generally is addressed to the faithful, it often speaks a language that is hard for the uninitiated to understand. It's subversive talk. It's language of resistance, and it uses poetry and symbolic language to avoid being identified by the oppressors. To the first listeners, Jesus' words would have made complete sense. Mark even says that the reader should understand this. We're like, I'm a reader. I don't understand this. He didn't say all readers. He said, you know. But... The difficulty in interpretation for us, it enters in because of our separation from that original audience through distance and time, culture and thousands of years. So let's try to cross some of that chasm. Mark wrote his gospel right around the time when Jewish zealots, those who expressed their resistance to the Roman occupiers, the Roman Empire, with violence and force. That's how they, they did it. And they had launched a rebellion and they'd actually reclaimed control of Jerusalem and the temple from the Romans. Now Jesus, years before this, he could see, he could see how the chips were falling. He, he knew that there was this particularly combustible mix of politics and religion and violence. And whether because of prophetic foresight or prophetic insight, he knew something like this would happen. He knew that the empire would respond with overwhelming force and destroy the temple. Now all of that would be preceded by what, what is called, he says in uh, Mark, the disgusting and destructive thing is standing where it shouldn't be. Now this is where Mark says the reader should understand this. Because the people he was writing to would have known, they would have recognized that this language comes straight out of the book of Daniel. Jesus was using this to refer to practices that took place in the temple that defiled its holiness. Hundreds of years before, a foreign occupying ruler had set up a pagan altar in the temple and offered pagan sacrifices. It was a an abomination that caused desolation. It was a, a destructive thing. And most scholars believe that through Mark, Jesus was saying that in the same way, someone will be in the temple who shouldn't be there. Someone who defiles it, and, and that will mark the beginning of the end for Jerusalem. And so it was when the Roman general Titus took control of the temple from the Jewish rebels in 70 AD and did more than defiled it. He destroyed it. 
demolished it. Get out quickly, Jesus warned, because the devastation will be awful. And it's in this context, in the, 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 with the coming destruction of Jerusalem, that Jesus laments the cost for pregnant women and mothers with young children. War and violence are always so costly for them in particular. It's in this context that, that Jesus says to pray it doesn't happen in winter because in Palestinian winters, flash floods can happen. And, and so it did happen, trapping Jewish refugees who were killed by Roman forces. And it's in this context that Jesus talks about the great suffering. The historian Josephus, who was a primary source for this event, wrote that over a million people lost their lives during the siege of Jerusalem because of violence, because of famine, and he even mentions because of cannibalism and the results and in the aftermath of that famine. They were so desperate. Great suffering. Now I know that's a lot of information, that's a lot to take in, it's a lot of context, and, but it's important to me that we not be afraid of the Bible because of the ways it has been misused and mishandled. Now there are mysteries in Scripture. There are mysteries in our faith. There is mystery in our faith. Not, not mystery as the unknowable, but mystery as the infinitely knowable. Mystery is something to step into, to be awed by, to wonder at, to learn and continue learning about. I know also that there can be a feeling of, uh, well, how am I supposed to understand the Bible if I need to know all of this context, if I need to know all of this information? You know, why can't I just read it and understand it? Well, let me say, I believe God can and does give life through the scriptures in whatever ways we can understand them. I do. And I believe we are not called to do faith on our own, but in community. There's a particular Western individual that, individualism that believes I should be able to figure out everything on my own. A self-contained success story. That's not how life works, y'all. That's not how faith works. That's, someone fed you when you were a baby. Someone helped you learn to walk and taught you words. Someone showed you how to ride a bike or swim or, or wrote the music. You learned to play on an instrument that you most likely didn't make yourself. Right? We could go on and on. But I think you get the point. We have, in our faith, we have a great cloud of witnesses, millions and millions of folks who devoted their lives, dedicated their lives to Jesus and to learning to live and love as he did. It is a gift to be able to see and experience and learn more about God through them, just as it is for me a gift to be able to see and experience and learn more about God through each of you, all of you here today. It's okay to not know everything and not be able to figure out everything on your own. We weren't made to do it that way. Let me bring us into the last few verses of our passage. Jesus has made clear that the wars and earthquakes and famines are not the ultimate end. The persecutions that his followers will face are not the ultimate end. Not even the destruction of the temple is the ultimate end, though it will be terrible. Then Jesus warns of false Christs and false prophets, those who will try to lead God's people astray, even with signs and wonders, even with miraculous works. How might people be led astray? I think by losing sight of the way Jesus has shown, way of God's kingdom, way of love and of justice and liberation and grace and nonviolent resistance to the powers 
of oppression. And so again, Jesus says, watch out. There's a, a theme there, a repetition that we might want to pay attention to. Watch out. And then in verse 24, we do get to the ultimate end. Jesus still doesn't answer the disciples' opening question of when. He says, in those days, after the suffering of that time, the sun will become dark and the moon won't give its light. Stars will fall from the sky and the planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then they will see the human one coming in the clouds with great power and splendor. Then he will send the angels and gather together his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, from the end of the earth to the end of heaven. Now, in apocalyptic literature, the concept of time is fluid and also fluid with the God for whom a thousand years is like a day. It's sometimes helpful and for us and sometimes not. In those days and after and then are loose containers for a, an unpredictable timeline. The coming of the human one, and here again, this is language drawn from, from the book of Daniel to align himself with God and even identify himself with God, Jesus says the coming of the human one will be the ultimate end. It will be an event that nobody can ignore. And just as God intended for the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus will be the fulfillment of that promise and that purpose, gathering up his people from all the world. And here we find overlap between the words of Mark and the words of the Apostle John in the Revelation at the coming of Christ, though we do not know when, though Jesus himself does not know when, as he says in a verse we'll look at next week, all things then will be fully and finally set right and made new. When? Then. So what do we learn about how to really live from all of this? At some point in my childhood, I was asked the question, what will the Lord find you doing when he returns? <laughs> I was so petrified. <laughs> not only that I'd be doing something that, that God would disapprove of, like lying or, or cheating or not obeying my parents, but even something just like, what if I have food in my mouth? <laughs> or if I'm answering a call of nature. That would be so awkward. But like I said, it's natural for us to wonder about the when. It is. But the point of Jesus' instructions to his disciples as we read through this passage, the point of Jesus' instructions was to actually discourage them from speculating about the when. It was instead to encourage them toward what I would call a future-oriented faithfulness now. A future-oriented faithfulness now. Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. The question is, how will you live now in light of that future? What does faithfulness look like? Well, perhaps, understanding how context works, we might look just a few verses prior to what Pastor Andrea talked about last week, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. They are intertwined. They are interconnected. They are inseparable, in fact. You see, where I take issue with many of those who proclaim the end of the world is that it doesn't seem to make them more loving. It seems to make them less loving. It seems to give license to marginalize and to demonize. 
to care less about the world God called us to steward, to care only about themselves and those like them. All of the instructions Jesus gives to watch out are not so that we might be more paranoid and fearful. Everything Jesus teaches is so that we might become more loving. Everything. That is the greatest commandment. Love. Author Frederick Buechner said this, the grace of God means something like here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. What is the invitation of God to you this morning, in this season of life? What does future-oriented faithfulness now look like for you? What is one practical implication, one tangible outworking of what it means to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself? When so much is swirling around us and swirling even within us, the reminder of Jesus is that the Holy Spirit will give us what we need. The call of Jesus is to bear the good news and to be faithful in love to the God who is love, the God who loves us and is with us even as we wait. Would you pray with me? God, every single one of us has some area in our life where we're waiting on an answer for you, from, from you. Where something is not as we would like it to be, where something is not as we would have it be, where something is not as you would have it be. Something in our life, something in our relationships, something in our, uh, our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our, in, in our world, God. The list could go on. And in those moments, God, we can become so overwhelmed, so paralyzed by the, the sheer size of what is outside of our control, what we can't fix on our own. And God, in those moments, you, you sit next to us, You don't offer platitudes. You don't offer cheap words. You sit with us. You know our longings. You hear our sighs. You collect our tears in a bottle. And patiently and graciously, you say, what is next now? One step at a time. One foot at a time. One thing at a time. One day at a time. God, may we know your presence with us, the one who holds all of the stars in the sky. 
the one who holds all of our life. May we seek after you, God. May we find you. Would you give us what we need, even if it is only enough for the day? We pray these things in Jesus' name. In the name of the one who will come again. Amen.